our last message in 1 Peter. And this really isn't intended to be a message that is full of content, that's heavy in terms of substance, but more in terms of reflection, application, looking into the Word of God, and seeking to, to remember, call to attention, the, the final message of Peter as he seeks to summarize the letter for us and to drive it home. It begins in chapter 5, verses 8 to 11. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Now, this is the third time that Peter has come to this. He started his letter with this in chapter 1, verse 13. He, he's commending watchfulness, be sober-minded, he says, set your affection, set your hope fully upon the grace that is to, is to come to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here he comes back at it again. Why does Peter care so much about watchfulness? Why does Peter care so much about readiness, sober-mindedness? And this first point, I, I want to uh, just call our attention to be alert. This is what we have said throughout our time together as we've touched on this word. We've remembered and recalled the, the encouragement, the command of Peter for his readers. Be alert. Be ready. Be watchful. watchful. As the New King James says, be vigilant. Have a, a readiness of heart, a watchful mind, eyes that see and perceive what's going on around you. I was talking with, um, with someone before the service and just as a point of honesty, here we come back to, to this word, this command for the third time in this passage and quite honestly, I feel unqualified. <laughs> How many times do we begin good efforts in prayer? How many times do we go to the word and, and seek to to, to, to reflect on the things that, that God wants for us in the day and about 30 seconds go by and then all of a sudden that other thought bombards our attention. We, we have every good intention of committing ourselves to God, of, of orienting our heart, of, of being alert, of being ready, of being focused, and, and we're bombarded with all of these competing affections, all of these competing distractions, all of these competing pressures, and, and, and 30 seconds in, it's over before it starts. There's no wonder why Peter goes back to this, because he knows how much we need to hear it. Be sober, be alert, be ready, be watchful. Have a mind that is so focused on the things of God that, that there is this concentration of heart, this, this laser-like clarity of mind in, in understanding why you exist as a beloved child of God. What, what is your purpose here? The disciples in their final moments with Jesus, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives probably for the very last time. They're, they're, they're facing, overlooking the Kidron Valley, they're facing Jerusalem, they see the glory of the temple in this Jerusalem, and, and, and they have heard Jesus say, it's all coming down. And they're like, what? 
And so as they sit on the Mount of Olives, they press in a little bit and ask some questions, and they say, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Another eschatological kind of message. That's our message this morning. It's an eschatological message. That's the theological term for last times. Jesus is coming. And for those who are ready, those who are attentive, those who are alert, there will be something different about your life. There will be a watchfulness about your life. Jesus begins to tell them a parable to try to, we're, we're story people, we remember stories. Jesus tells them this story, this sequence of stories to to press home this point in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. You're probably familiar with it. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. They all come to the right place. They all come at the right time. They're all equipped with the same lamp, as it were, the, this preparation that, uh, that came ahead of time in terms of, of at least coming with the right things. They all have the same credentials. They're all ten virgins. We could assume that they're all dressed for the same celebration. They all come to to rejoice in the same festivities. There was just one thing that distinguished the group, and it was alertness. It was readiness. It was watchfulness. Look at how significant this issue is as Jesus moves on with the story. He says, but at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. We see Jesus begin to develop the story some more, and we see that the lack of watchfulness, the lack of preparation, the lack of readiness to, to be ready when the bridegroom would come, and, and it wouldn't necessarily, excuse me, wouldn't necessarily come at the time that they were ready for him initially, they needed to be watchful and ready as the time progressed. Not just a moment of readiness, but an, an enduring readiness of heart and mind. Jesus now brings this story home and we see the implications of their lack of readiness. Says, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. That's our word this morning. The word for us is watch. The word for us is alertness. That same word that Jesus uses in this parable is the same word that we see in our text this morning. 
indicating watchfulness and readiness, not just momentary watchfulness, but this heart and the spirit of expectation and readiness and alertness that, that will characterize the true believer. That's why Jesus says to his disciples in the garden, he says, watch and pray. You might not enter into temptation. Those who are true believers, those who have positioned themselves and oriented themselves underneath the mighty hand of God, have come to him in faith, recognize their true identity, recognize their purpose in life, recognize what they were meant to accomplish, recognize their mission, and they go after it, and there is this spirit of alertness and readiness that characterizes them from day to day. Be alert, be sober, be watchful. And when we are sober and watchful and ready and alert, then there will be a couple things about our life that will play out. A couple of characteristics, a couple of features that you can expect to see in the life of those who are orienting, orienting themselves in terms of readiness. Here's what it says. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Verse 10. Because the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Those who are alert will live expectantly. They will live with this anticipation of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter has already underscored this on a couple of occasions as he has walked through this. In chapter 1, verse 13, he says, be sober-minded in view of the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and be sober-minded because we're in the, in the last days. It's the revelation of, of God is at hand. It's, it's ready. He, he's coming. As James will say this in, in, in his short summary, which is very similar to what we read in 1 Peter he comes to the point of saying, the judge is standing at the door in James chapter 5, verse 9. Understand your purpose. Understand your mission. Understand the reason for which you have been saved. It is to please your master. And at least one of two reactions will happen you will either experience the God of all grace that we find here in verse 10 of chapter 5, verse 10. The God of all grace will come and he, and he will strengthen and confirm and establish you or you're going to experience the white hot glory of the God who is sovereign over all and you will experience judgment because the judge is standing at the door. Are you ready? Is your life lived expectantly? There's so many ways that Peter has tried to draw this out through his letter. He, he has done this by helping to, to, to call attention to the distinction between what is temporary and what is eternal. All throughout his, his letter, he keeps drawing attention to this imperishable, unfading, this inheritance that you have. It's kept in heaven for you. And this imperishable beauty that he, he calls wives to enjoy as they seek to cultivate what really matters. Of course, 
As we read through the Gospels, we see the same kind of thing where Jesus continues to commend those who have the right expectant focus will have the right kind of heart. He says in Matthew chapter six, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. What's the point in that? It's gonna rust, it's gonna moss, you're gonna come. It's not worth your time, but invest in heaven. That's permanent. He says in Matthew chapter six, verse 25, he says, don't, don't worry about your life, what you're gonna eat or what you're gonna drink or your body, what you'll put on. These are the things that Gentiles spend their energy on. These are the things that the, that the heathen worry about. Don't, don't be like them. Rather, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you. Live expectantly. Live a life of faith. Understand that this life is temporary. Don't get caught up in all of the burdens and distractions of this life. Set your hope and your focus on the things that matter. Recognize that now as a king, uh, a child of the king, that you have now a kingdom purposes to fulfill. You don't have to mess around with the, with the trivial things of this life. You can set your energies and devote your focus on things that matter, things that last. Live expectantly. Don't allow the spiritual amnesia to settle in. Don't look horizontally for the things that can only be gained vertically, the things that you look for for the people in this life to fulfill that only God himself. Orient your focus, as Paul says in Colossians chapter three. He says, set your eyes on things above where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God. Orient your focus there. So live expectantly. He also wants us to understand that we need to live strategically. He says that here, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Live strategically. And we do this in two different ways. First, you have to know your enemy. You have to know your enemy. Now, we're in a Baptist church. Baptists don't talk about Satan very much. They don't talk about demonic and spiritual warfare. It's just kind of taboo. It's kind of off limits. But I want you to recognize that the reason why we need to press in and talk about Satan a little bit is because we are impotent and weak and defenseless because we don't know our enemy. We are unaware of Satan's schemes. We are so preoccupied with the physical that we forget that we live in the spiritual realm. Paul will say in Ephesians chapter six, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't, we don't wrestle in the physical world. We wrestle in the spiritual one. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and, and spiritual forces. That, that's where you need to take the battle and you can't do it on your own. You have to run to spiritual weaponry to, to fight spiritual wars. But so often we pick up earthly weapons We pick up things that really will have no power in this life that we're living. Live strategically, know your enemy. The gospels are punctuated by spiritual activity. 25 times in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is confronting 
or is being confronted by demons and Satan and spiritual forces. 25 times in the Gospel of Luke, we find the same kind of thing. 28 times in the Gospel of Luke, we find Jesus is confronted by or confronting spiritual forces. How can we be so oblivious to our enemy? And when we are oblivious to his schemes, we render ourselves unfruitful and unproductive. Unable to engage in the battle that rages every single day. Know your enemy. Second, you need to know your defense. Live strategically means that you know your defense. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 19 begins to develop for us the the resources that we have, the spiritual weaponry that you have in order to live the life that God has called you to live, in order to to be alert, in, in order to engage the battle that you have been called to engage. We'll press into this a little bit more in our next section, but I, but I want you to realize Paul, at the very beginning of this, in verse 10, says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You don't have to be defenseless. You don't have to be uh, impotent. You can, you can allow the strength of God to bolster and empower your efforts the efforts that he has called you to as you are a workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It will only happen as you employ the weaponry that God has given to you. Know your defenses. The primary defense as you walk through this passage talks about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and praying at all times in the spirit. The weaponry that we have is the Bible. The weaponry that we have is the truth. The weaponry that you have is the word of God coupled with the spirit of God to engage the life that God has called you to live. And if you're not living day by day, picking up and arming yourself with the spiritual armor, you're going to be vulnerable and you're going to lose. Couple yourself, not with earthly strength, but with spiritual power. Oh God, help us to live alert, to be alert and live strategically in the life that you've called us to. May we have an expectancy about us, anticipating the coming of Christ and all that that means for us. May that, may that provide uh, clarity in life and focus of, of priorities from day to day. We ask in your name, amen. As we continue to anticipate the coming of Christ, his revelation to us in the consummation of the work that began at the cross, and carrying us to glory, being kept by the power of God, the work that God promises to do. We live with expectant hope, uh, hearts. We, we live anticipating his return. There is an alertness, a readiness, a watchfulness. But verse 9 brings it to the next step. We are not only aware of what's happening around us, what our mission is, but we're resolute. We're determined, we're determined and and persevering in the work that God has called us to. Notice, 
Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Be resolute. There are two things that characterize this posture of being determined, of being resolute, and, and we find them both here in this verse. The, the, firm, the, the first is that you are strengthened in your faith. It is a, a resistance that is em, emboldened, empowered by faith. It's not a faith that you have uh, on your own. It's a faith that is, is a gift of God, right, to you, and it's a faith that you work out from day to day. How do we strengthen this faith? And, and, and how do we even begin this process of, of resisting the devil? This word to resist is to be hostile towards, to oppose, to rebel, to set one's self against. It is similar to the word that we saw in chapter 5, verse 5, which says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It is the same word that that Paul will use in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, where he says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. That's our word. This standing firm, this readiness, resistance that happens. Resistance then is not passive. It is active but it is kind of the activity that is standing your ground, not engaging in areas that you don't belong. Not an aggressive nature of of going after the gates of hell, as it were, but standing on something, standing on faith. That is the strengthening process that we're called to here. Peter commands Christians to have a mind that is resolute and to resist Satan by Having, uh, having a firm faith that is anchored. This is a call to know and believe sound doctrine. To be discerning in distinguishing truth from error. To be willing to defend the truth and expose the error. Of standing your ground, of knowing who God is and being able to defend the things that you know about God, not only to your own heart as you preach to yourself, but as you engage and encourage others around you, friends and family and coworkers and neighbors, to to understand and know uh, where the battle lines are, where where the truth is. That's why we have said throughout the last several months that there is no middle ground here. There's no room for compromise. We must be those who know the truth and are, and are willing and ready to stand with the truth, strengthening your faith. The word firmness is to be solid or strong or firm or steadfast. It's the same idea that the Apostle Paul encourages to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, take heed to yourself or keep a close Watch on yourself and to the doctrine. Why? Well, here's why. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear. How how active are you in knowing doctrine? How, How active and diligent are you in recognizing and cultivating a deep and rich theology in your heart? 
of pressing in and not just knowing the casual things about the Bible, the, those stories that we were so familiar with and David and Goliath and Daniel in the lion's den and, and Moses in the ark, you know, those familiar stories. <laughs> Noah in the ark. I was wondering if you would catch that. I heard a joke yesterday about that, but I'm not gonna go there. Does the theology of God's word anchor your heart? Does it fix you? Does it create a resoluteness, a firmness, and a steadiness about you? You're not washed around and tossed to and fro with the, by the winds of doctrine like we find in Ephesians chapter four, verses 14 and 15. But there's this steadiness, there's an anchored uh, steadiness about your life. The pylons run deep and you stand fixed in defending the truth. And when you do that, you will save yourself, and by God's grace, you will save those around you. But it only happens as you strengthen your heart and faith, and you commit yourself to know God's word. Strengthen your faith, and I think he is alluding to opening your eyes here. The last part of verse Nine, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing, there it is, that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This knowing is the word to see. It's oida. It's not just a knowing in, in, in terms of knowing facts and figures. It, it, it points to a perception. There's a knowing through experience. There's a knowing through seeing and, and learning and observing. That's the kind of knowing that we're talking about here. Recognizing God's strategy in the world that runs through the pathway of suffering. There are one of four questions that we'll ask ourselves about God when life is hard. We might ask ourselves, does God see what's happening in my life? Does God care what's happening in my life? Or number three, does God have power to do anything about what's happening in my life? And the fourth question is, does God exist? Where are you on that continuum? For those who have a strength in faith and a steady theology and open eyes, they recognize, as Peter has pointed out here and throughout his letter, by the way, you will recognize that suffering is God's strategy to help anchor our hearts and focus our attention on what really matters as we're looking to Christ, looking for grace, looking for help that only comes from one place. He's been pointing to this throughout his letter. We don't have time this morning to go through all of these verses, but, but I just want you to, to recognize that the suffering Savior has been in the forefront because, because your life is meant to be a window to Christ, and it is only a window to Christ. People see the gospel when they see your readiness to experience the same things that Christ experienced. Don't resent suffering. Don't bristle at suffering. Don't pray suffering away. Embrace it. See it as an opportunity, an opportunity to make much of God and an opportunity to, to magnify the wonder of the gospel because people will see Jesus as they see your faith in the midst of hard things. 
And that's what we want. That's the mission we've been called to. And Peter wants his his church, these churches to understand, God hasn't singled you out in terms of, of, of making an example of you. He, he's, he's not trying to make things really hard because he doesn't like you. He wants to make much of himself through your suffering. Embrace it for the sake of the kingdom. Lord, we thank you. You've called us to alertness, but you've also called us to resoluteness. We've, you've called us to strength. The kind of strength that we can have, not because we find it internally, but the kind of strength that we have as we are strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. May we pick up spiritual weaponry to fight spiritual battles. Help us to see through the, the, the fog, through the midst, the mist. Help us to, to recognize we wrestle not against flesh and blood but we wrestle against principalities and powers. Help us to couple ourselves with divine strength so we can be faithful to accomplish the purposes that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. You need to be alert. You need to be resolute. And finally, in verses 10 to 11, we find that you can be encouraged. Isn't that good news? You can be encouraged. Here's what it says. It says, after you have suffered a little while, he's promised suffering, suffering that's happening all around the world, but after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, let me repeat that again, the God of all grace, meaning you can't find grace anywhere else because he has it all. He's the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. You need grace this morning? This is one of uh, Peter's favorite words throughout this letter. <laughs> time and time and time again, he calls the church to come and run and experience the grace of God. Now, when we talk about the grace of God, of course, you can't enjoy any parts of the grace of God until you first experience God's grace and salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Have you experienced this morning God's saving grace? I know there are people in this room today who have never tasted grace, the grace of God. All through this week, not only myself, but the pastoral team, and I'm sure many of you, and uh, it's been part of the prayers of the people of this church throughout the, the last several years that, that we would see God's grace in life of turning dark hearts to light and dead hearts to life. We want to see the grace of God for you, but it only comes one way. It only comes as you recognize your own personal bankruptcy. You cannot get to God on your own. You, you, you can't do enough good stuff because you do one thing and it's over because sin is falling short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
which means as soon as you, as soon as you mess up once, now the scale is broken. Because the glory of God is perfection. That is his standard. I don't think we have any perfect people in this room. But you don't, you don't need to be to experience grace. As a matter of fact, God delights in showing grace to broken, wicked, ungodly rebels. My prayer is that no one will walk out this door, the doors in the back, without having tasted God's grace. Even in this moment, maybe the Spirit is speaking to your heart and you realize, I, I need something outside of me. I, I recognize that, that all that this verse promises in terms of restoration and confirmation and strength and steadiness and, and being established, I, I want all those things. Maybe you're looking for acceptance. Maybe you're looking for, for the, the platitudes of others. Maybe you're looking for positions or titles. Or maybe you're looking for, for all of the, the things that the, that the world would have to give, but you're finding them empty. They don't satisfy. Maybe in the moments they feel kind of good, but, but then just a, a split second later, you're like, I feel so empty. It doesn't have to be that way. Taste from the well of grace. The grace of God on the cross, dying for your sin. That, that's what this grace is all about. Because, you see, grace is, maybe the Sunday school answer is undeserved favor. Meaning, God wants to shower you with kindness, but you don't deserve it, and neither do I. But that's what makes God look glorious, is when he can he can just uh, pour out the exceeding abundance of his riches and kindness on you. He loves doing that. Have you tasted his grace today? But the grace isn't meant to be a one-time offering. And those who are growing in their spiritual life recognize that once you've tasted grace, you want more. And the, the, the beauty of God's grace is it's, it's an untappable supply. It, it will never run dry. It, it's always full. And so you draw from God's grace and, 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 and Christians around the world are drawing from that grace too. And there's just as much grace tomorrow as there is today. And that's why Peter says at the very beginning of his letter, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you and you've tasted the grace of God, it should give you a hunger for more and nothing else will satisfy. Are you tapping in to the grace of God? Are you finding that Jesus alone is the one who can meet your deepest needs? God wants that for you. The God of all grace is beckoning you to participate in grace and to enjoy the benefits of what only he can give as the God of all grace. Here's how important it is to him. Is that no one else is gonna dispense this grace but him. It says that he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now in the, the Greek, there is agreement between verbs and subjects. So we don't have that in the in, in English, there are other languages, of course, that use uh, those kinds of declensions, but we don't have the benefit of that in English. So we kind of miss the, 
the, the emphasis that's here. There is an emphasis in the Greek that says there is a, uh, a second person or third person singular uh, verb and a third person singular noun, and they agree. But, but what's also a part of this is this reflexive program, uh, pronoun, which also points back to him. He himself will do this. He takes delight. And as the God of all grace, pouring out his grace and being the personal conduit of that ministry of kindness to you, are you running to grace? It's available. It's accessible to you. All of these words kind of overlap in their meaning, but, but at the end of the day, what it, what it leads to is this people who have been, who have been uh, dislodged from, from their communities. They have, they're strangers, they're aliens, they're outcasts, and, and they're looking for some measure of stability, and God says, well, you're, you're looking for it in the right place because it's coming. All of these words are in the future sense. It doesn't mean that we can't taste and enjoy some of it today, but, but, but we're looking for the consummation and the fulfillment of that when Jesus comes back. And that if we never experience it this side of glory, it's, it's okay. Because we know our life points to grace. The grace of God poured out on, our, on us day by day by day. We find his eternal glory in Christ as the continuing anthem of, of Peter's message and letter here. Because all of life is moving in the direction of the glory of God where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of who? Of God the Father. The cross and all that Christ did to die and rise from the dead points to glory. And so this morning as we, as we remember the coming of Christ, and we remember the words of Christ, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is an eschatological service. This is a, a service that points to the end. It's the, a service that reminds us of the finished work, the, the winning work, victorious work of Christ. And so this has no saving value Taking the bread or drinking this juice does nothing for you in terms of, of meriting grace. It only comes through faith as we believe in Jesus. We ask forgiveness for our sins. We understand that he is the only way to God. But this is a remembrance. This is a way for us to celebrate that finished work and to, to remind ourselves of his coming. So would you take the bread with me this morning? The, the difficulty of, of this little round, perfectly round wafer is that it doesn't do a very good job in symbolizing the broken body of Christ. That's, that's what this is supposed to symbolize. That there was a violence to the death that Jesus experienced. There was a, a breaking apart, a tearing, a tearing that happened, a crushing that took place because of our sin. That God's wrath crushed 
and bruised and broke his son, Jesus Christ, so that we could experience all the life-giving power that is available through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you experienced grace in that way? Let's remember the work of Christ in dying for us as we take together. And then we come to the cup. This cup that symbolizes the blood of Christ, which is the the life-giving blood. Life was spent to offer life for us. Not just eternal life with God, as important as that is some future life that we'll have with him, but a life that begins in the moment of conversion. You can experience abundant life, productive life, a vigilant, empowered life as you tether yourself to the life-giving, grace-giving God. Let's remember this morning the life of Christ as we drink together. Lord, thank you for the offering of your son, Jesus, the suffering Savior. May we walk in your steps. May we embrace suffering for the sake of this gospel picture that suffering is the canvas in which the glory of God in the gospel is put on display. May we not push it away. May we run to embrace and accept this great commission of showcasing the glory of God through suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.